0: We are studying the book of Galatians, and we are in chapter 2 this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you might turn there and follow along. We're going to read from verses 6 through 14 this morning. If you would, would you stand? We stand in recognition that this is the inspired, inerrant, uh, word of God, and not merely a letter uh, from a man uh, to a group of friends. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, only by the ministry of your spirit working in our minds and hearts uh, can these spiritual words become alive to us and life-giving to us. And we ask that that might be uh, what you are pleased to do this morning. And we ask, Lord, for strength to be alert. We ask, Lord, for minds that are uncluttered, for the things that might be noisy, and a call for our attention to be quieted and stilled in your presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Galatians 2.6 And from those who seem to be influential... And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ so that we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Him and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You may be seated. Could an apostle actually lose sight of the gospel? Is it possible that Peter really doesn't get the gospel? Is it possible that you and I don't either? Now it was awkward and embarrassing, like it always is when a fight breaks out in a church. This happened at a fellowship dinner between two men who were the most prominent leaders in the church. It was Peter against Paul, a knockdown, drag out, in your face, fight and no one saw it coming. After all, these two men had been good friends and had shown uh, great respect for each other. They'd given each other the right hand of fellowship and the recognition they were on the same team ministering the same gospel just to different uh, groups of people. But now Paul is confronting uh, Peter in front of the church in a place ordinarily where laughter and pleasant conversation were the norm. Now this disagreement is one of the most dramatic moments in the New Testament and many people have been uncomfortable uh, with it. In the early church Uh, Some said this was merely staged to make a point. They wanted to protect Peter's reputation. Peter certainly couldn't be that mistaken about things. And uh, many modern scholars have thought, well, this represented a profound and utter divide between Peter and Paul, a rift that was never healed, which is not true. Yet for Paul, as he writes this letter, it is the crowning proof uh, that his gospel... His law-free, ritual-free, performance-free gospel was authoritative. He's been telling his story uh, in this book so far uh, to make the point that his gospel was directly from Jesus Christ and not received from men. And now he shows that his gospel is true, the gospel of free grace, Because it has the authority to rebuke even an apostle who stepped out of line. Now, what moved Paul to confront Peter? What was so important and so urgent that Paul didn't pull Peter aside and have a private uh, conversation? Well, I want you to know it's not because Paul was irritated. It wasn't, this was not a flare of uh, a momentary anger. Uh, No. One way to see what is happening is to consider that eating is more than simply a way of taking in nutrition or experiencing the pleasure of food and drink. Eating is a cultural and social event. What we eat and whom we eat with says something about who we are. Bacon and eggs is quintessentially an American breakfast. And sometimes, certain people don't eat with other people. Maybe you saw the very heartwarming film, Hidden Figures. It recounts the true story uh, when NASA depended on human calculators to do the complex calculations involved in launch and re-entry of vehicles into space. Uh, The story centers uh, around a group of African American women uh, who are the very best mathematicians at Langley, NASA's Langley complex. And the women shined and their skills uh, were needed in an area of the complex where colored people didn't have a bathroom, to use an archaic term. Catherine uh, Johnson is the name of the actress who joins uh, the group uh, that's uh, in charge of making these final calculations. And there was no bathroom in that building for colored people. And so she was forced to walk across uh, the campus uh, to use the, the bathroom. And she was not allowed to drink coffee from the coffee pot that all the whites there uh, had coffee uh, from. Eventually, a separate pot was erected for hers. Now, this film is an accurate portrayal of the segregation and the racism that was common when I uh, grew up. I attended a segregated elementary school in Richmond, uh, Virginia, and I'd actually never encountered in a school setting anybody uh, who was African American. They simply weren't in my school. This is one of the dynamics that's actually happening in this fellowship dinner in Antioch. Uh, Clarence uh, Jordan uh, wrote the Cotton Patch uh, Letters and Gospels in order to capture something of the ethnic tensions, the racial tensions uh, that were present in the early church that are present in ours. And this is how he paraphrases uh, this passage uh, from Galatians. But uh, in spite of all of this, when Peter came to Albany... I had to rebuke him to his face because he was clearly in error. For before the committee appointed by James arrived, he was eating with the Negroes. That's Jordan's term. But when they came, he shrank back and segregated himself because he was afraid of the whites. He even got the rest of his white liberals uh, to play uh, the hypocrite with him. uh, So that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now, Clarence Jordan's paraphrase captures the ethnic and racial tension at Antioch. Now, there's more going on here than just racism. Well, what is it? Well, for Jews, circumcision, Sabbath observance, and keeping kosher were a sign that they belonged to God. That was an element of their religious identity. And so, at mealtimes, all mealtimes were religious events for Jews. Remember this from the Gospels? How often people were upset with Jesus because he ate with sinners and tax collectors? For a Jew, who you had at a meal represented your judgment of who was respectable, acceptable, good enough to actually be in the presence of God to eat because the host invoked the very name of God over the meal. It was a religious event. Now in Jerusalem, the Gentile uh, Christians eating with Jewish Christians wasn't a big problem because there weren't very many Gentiles in Jerusalem. But in Antioch, which was a city of maybe as much as a half a million people, the Jews only represented 10% of the population. It was a cosmopolitan melting pot. In fact, it was the first place uh, where Christians were uh, so named. It was a place where ethnicities mixed. And Antioch became the first place where the church actually had to face at a practical level uh, this issue. Uh, How was it that a Jew was to worship in a church that was more Gentile, uh, Than Jewish? Uh, and could they eat together? Or should they eat at separate tables, separate food, so that they could keep kosher? Now, uh, Peter and Paul, as we had seen uh, previously, uh, had agreed uh, that in principle, the Gentiles, like Titus, didn't have to become Jews to be full Christians. No circumcision. No Sabbath-keeping. No, they didn't have to keep uh, kosher. But the gospel's uh, acceptance doesn't rest on any of those things. It's so important we be clear about this. This is such a foundational principle, and Paul returned to it again and again. It rests only on what Jesus has done for us. This is such a liberating truth, boys and girls. It is not your being good. That makes you acceptable to God. It is what Jesus has done, that makes you acceptable to God. Now it was easy for Peter to affirm this, because sometime uh, before Paul's visit to Jerusalem, Peter had a vision from God, it's recounted in Acts chapter 10, that had uh, made this startlingly clear to him. One day he was uh, praying, waiting uh, for lunch, and God gave him a vision uh, where a sheet. Came down from heaven and it was filled with unclean animals, animals that weren't uh, kosher, which a Jew should not uh, eat of. And God said, Peter, rise and kill and eat. And he objected, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything that isn't uh, kosher in my entire life. And the Lord said, What God has made clean, do not call unclean. This happens three times. And Peter is stunned. Uh, uh, He's puzzling out what it uh, means. And then the Holy Spirit told him there were three men who were looking for him that had been uh, sent to him. And he was to accompany them. And these three uh, men came from a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And Peter goes with them. Peter sets aside his normal objections. Normally a Jew would not go to the home of a Gentile. And there Cornelius has gathered his family and friends, and he says, Peter, you have a message from God for us. And Peter proclaims the gospel, and they believe, and the Holy Spirit falls in them. And that day, uh, Peter ended up saying repeatedly, now I understand that God is not a respecter of men. He shows no partiality. But eventually, Peter came to see that this vision meant not only that the gospel should go to all the nations, but that it had something to do with keeping kosher. And so when Peter first got to Antioch, he saw Jewish and Gentile uh, Christians having their fellowship dinners together, and he joined in. No questions, no separate tables. He didn't ask where this food came from. Was it kosher or not? And then some men from Jerusalem came, They came uh, uh, from James. They identified themselves with James. They they were Pharisees. They belonged to the strictest sect of Judaism, and they were very scrupulous about keeping all the ceremonial laws. And whatever else they might have said, it awoke a fear in Peter, at least a fear of being uh, criticized, of being criticized about his failure to keep kosher. The pressure of this group got to him. And so Peter withdrew. And Peter, his example is very influential. And so all the Jews in Antioch followed his example. They decided to keep kosher and to stop eating with their Gentile brothers and sisters. Even Barnabas, who had gone with Paul on the Gentile missionary (laughs) uh, efforts... He stopped doing this. He let go of this principle. Well, Peter was being a coward. He was fearing men. And we can see that really no one is uh, immune to the fear of man. But there's a deeper problem here. It's that Peter didn't get the gospel. He didn't see how it actually applied to daily life. Paul Writes very plainly here. He doesn't see Peter's behavior as rude, ill mannered, or unwelcoming. No, Uh, he says Peter stood condemned before God, that he was acting as a hypocrite. He was play acting in his behavior, uh, as if he were actually strictly kosher. And uh, Paul confronts him. Uh, ...for his actions because they deny the very heart of the gospel. And he puts it in a very striking way. It's in verse 14. I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's how the ESV puts it. Uh, Peter uh, wasn't living in line with the truth of the gospel... The word in step here uh, is literally ortho walking. Now, some of you boys and girls uh, may have been or may be going to see someone called the orthodontist. (laughs) Ortho means to straighten your teeth, and that's what ortho means. The gospel is a truth. Now, it's a message. It makes a set of claims, and that includes that we are weak. We are sinful. We want to be in control of our own lives. We actually want to be our own saviors. We work out ways to save ourselves, uh, to make ourselves uh, right uh, with God. And the gospel announces to us that Jesus uh, acted on our behalf. He lived out everything that God uh, can and does require of us. He died in our place so that we could be fully accepted by God, even though... We're still very flawed and sinful. Nonetheless, we are now totally and fully accepted by God. And so this means that the truth of the gospel has a trajectory. It leads in a certain direction. And it has a vast number of implications for our lives. And it's our job to actually bring our lives into line with the gospel, with the thrust and the direction the gospel uh, gives. This means there's implications from the gospel for every area of our lives from work to how you go to school to how you respond uh, to your uh, neighbors uh, to how you live in friendship, in marriage in family life and not just church life every single sphere. You create something cultural, something cultural. It needs to be in line with uh, the gospel. And so it's, your are my job to actually understand how our lives are to align with the gospel and ask ourselves, do they? Are they actually doing this? Now I must tell you, for more than 20 years, Uh, I've come to see the Gospels far deeper than I first appreciated. And I've been helped by many people. And in what I'm going to say now, I've been especially helped by Tim Keller. So here's the first sweeping implication. That the power of the Gospel is unleashed in our lives when we bring the truth of the Gospel to bear on every area of our lives. Paul announces in Romans 1, six that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Or it has the very life of God, and he puts it this way in uh, the letter to the Corinthians, I gave you birth through the gospel. The gospel is life-giving. And the second implication of this is that the sufficiency of the gospel itself. Paul is showing us that we never get beyond The gospel to something more advanced, something deeper or higher, which is one of the casualties that happens, one of the subtle things that happens. The more theological education, the more Bible knowledge you gain. You start to think, well, that's where life is, but it's not. Life is in the gospel. The gospel is the secret to the Christian life. And so it's not only uh, necessary as the way we enter into a relationship with God, but it's how we make progress in the Christian life comes as we exercise faith in the gospel. But, you know, it's very common to think, many pastors think this, and probably the majority of people in church actually uh, think that the way we uh, grow is not the way we come to Christ, The gospel is for non-Christians. They come to Christ, and then they grow through work and obedience. But work that is not in line with the gospel will not sanctify, and in fact it will strangle. And what difference does this make? Well, I want to draw out a couple of uh, applications for you this morning because we can extend this metaphor to say that gospel renewal, gospel joy and power are ours when we stay on the line and avoid getting off to either side, to the left or the right. This means the gospel is a third way between two mistaken opposites. I don't mean that the gospel is a compromise between these two things, or it divides the middle. No, it's a third other way than these two things. The gospel critiques both religion and irreligion. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, put it this way. Just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. What Tertullian means by this is there are two false ways of thinking each of which steals the power uh, and distinctiveness of the gospel by pulling us off the gospel line to one side or the other. One of these things might be called moralism or legalism, and the other is hedonism or relativism. Or another way to put it is that the gospel opposes both religion and irreligion. On the one hand, moralism stresses truth without grace. And it really says we must obey in order to be saved. On the other hand, relativists and irreligion stresses grace without truth. They say we're all acceptable and we, to God and we need to decide for ourselves what's right or wrong. But grace without truth is not really grace. And truth without grace is not really truth. Jesus was full of both grace and truth. And if you veer to either side, you lose the joy and the power and the freedom that the gospel gives you. They're stolen. Just how does that happen? Well, moralism is the view that you're acceptable to God, the world to others, even yourself, through attainments, through what you do. Moralists don't have to be religious, but often they are. And when they are, their religion is conservative and filled with rules that focus on behavior. Moralists view God as very holy and just. And this view either leads you to despise yourself because you can't live up to these things, or to be proud Because you actually think you're doing all these uh, things. And it's really ironic that the very same point of view produces both people who are crushed and people who are smug. How does relativism steal joy and power? Well, relativists are usually irreligious or else they prefer liberal religion. On the surface, they're more tolerant than other uh, people. They think that everyone needs to determine right and wrong on their own. If they're religious, they like to talk about uh, the love of God. But since they don't see themselves as bad, uh, it doesn't cost God anything uh, to welcome us. And, um, because God's just a very welcoming God. And what that does is it empties the significance of the cross which is far richer and far deeper and far more gripping than a God who simply welcomes everybody for just who they are, the way they are. Now, let me uh, illustrate this with two areas. One is suffering. Moralistic people have a problem when suffering enters their lives. And the reason is, is because part of the point of moralism is to put God in your debt. God owes you. And uh, God owes you a safe life uh, because of how good you are. And so when suffering hits, the moralist is forced either to feel terrific anger at God, because God's not keeping his side of the bargain, or terrific anger with themselves because they're failures at living out the expectations Either way, you'll think, I hate God, or I hate myself. You might even swing back and forth between these two things. The relativistic, hedonist person's more likely to become bitter uh, against life or God since they believe they don't deserve any troubles in life. But the gospel's a third way. On the one hand, the gospel humbles us out of any sense of being mad at God. Because Jesus, who is the very best person who ever lived, suffered profoundly. And that demolishes the idea that good people don't suffer. And bad people should. If God himself was willing to suffer in this life for us, then we shouldn't think ourselves exempt from suffering. We should expect to suffer because we follow a suffering Savior. On the other hand, the gospel moves us out of feeling guilty and mad at ourselves for Christ died when we were yet sinners. And the trouble at the moment we're experiencing might be God's way of waking us up, but it's never God's way of punishing you. Jesus has taken all the punishment for your sins upon Himself. God will never punish you for His sins. That is not what the Bible means when God disciplines us. No, it's not punishment. Although sometimes parents and their discipline is punishment. No, it's it's just correction. It's just to often exposes. Uh, really how little progress we've made, really uh, how weak our faith is, and God's intent is that we would draw near to him and we'd go strong. As someone has put, put it this way, Jesus suffered not that we might suffer, but that when we suffer, we could become like him. One other area uh, that has broad implications for us both individually and together as a church Peter's sin was basically nationalism. He insisted that Christians can't really please God unless they become Jewish. That's what he was doing with his behavior. Okay, He's a hypocrite because he said with his mind that isn't true. But that's in fact what his behavior was saying. You have to become Jewish to be fully accepted by God like we are. And that is but one form of legalism. Legalism is looking to something else other than Jesus Christ to be acceptable and clean before God. And legalism always produces pride and fear in us and exclusion and strife in our relationships with others. Now... There are many examples of this, and uh, they're just examples of how we're actually failing to live out justification by faith, how we're failing to stay in line with the gospel, and here's one way. It's to be sectarian. Every Christian group and denomination of necessity has numerous distinctions in their beliefs and practices, but most of these have less to do with the core of the gospel Then they uh, do with specific convictions about ethical behavior and about church policy. And it's extremely easy to let our distinctions uh, be that which uh, we embrace in order to distinguish ourselves uh, from others so that others might know we're superior. Our, Our way of doing church is better than anybody else's way. But the gospel enables us to see that every Christian group has strengths and weaknesses. And uh, if we're walking in line with the gospel, we'll be both humble and charitable with other Christians and other groups. That doesn't mean you don't actually think what you're doing is best. Of course you should do what you think is doing is best, with the caveat that no church lives and teaches everything perfectly. We just don't. There are, as the, as the common expression is, there are no perfect churches. P in PCA is not the perfect church in America. There are no perfect churches in America. We all know that. Another way is to bring classist and nationalistic or racist attitudes from the world into the church. We all know Christians uh, who belong to classes or groups or have personality types that we previously disdained uh, in our lives outside the church. Working class Christians often uh, have a distaste for Christians from wealthier and more socially refined backgrounds, and vice versa. Christians from one political persuasion may be upset and actually discover that there are people in their church who hold the opposite. Uh, political points of view. Very talented Christians uh, may, well, disdain people who aren't so gifted, who they view as uh, mediocre. We may feel uncomfortable with people whose cultural emphasis are different than our own. And we may respond to this just the way that Peter does. We may politely sit by those people in church, but we won't eat with them. We won't really become friends with them. We won't socialize with them. We won't invite them into our homes. We won't have meaningful friendships with them. We won't actually share with them. Our only relation is the official relation that happens in the life of the church. All of this comes from not living out the gospel, not living in lines with the gospel, because our hearts have to manufacture self-esteem by comparing our group to another and believing that our group is better than another. This is what drives the divisions in the human race. The gospel tells us we're all unclean. We're all an equal playing field with God. And without Christ, we can't be clean. It's only in Christ that we're all clean. And that makes us all socially equal. And last of all, and this is the most subtle of all, is that we can take our own preferences too seriously and endow them with a moral significance or a spiritual significance, uh, which in things which are only cultural. For example, it's very hard for Christians with, uh, in churches who have emotional expressiveness characterizes their worship and modern music. I've worshipped among such people. Uh, I've uh, been among them, was a a part of such groups. And it's very hard, coming from there, not... uh, And I made this transition once early in my Christian life, and it was a a challenging transition for me, to be in a church uh, where uh, it's emotionally reserved, where actually the life of the mind, thinking, is more important and where uh, it's a reserved emotional environment and the music is classical. Each of these groups looks at the other and says, our way is better. Our way's more spiritual. Our way's the only way, the right way. And it's very hard for us to see we're just different. We like different things. We prefer uh, different things. And so we often construct arguments, lots of arguments that really are, well, they're pretty thin, Uh, But they seem to us uh, to support our uh, point of view, and that's true on either side of this. I've worked, lived, and been in all of these places. You see, uh, um, the gospel causes us to break down those barriers in the body of Christ, The main problem in the Christian life is this, that we haven't thought through the implications of the gospel. We haven't gone through them deeply enough, and they connect with every area, every human endeavor, every activity that we can engage in. We fail to grasp it and believe it thoroughly. Uh, Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, puts it uh, this way, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. And it's most necessary that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into our heads continually. <laughs> Classic Luther. <laughs> And Luther himself, in other places, writes how he struggled to do that. Even 25, 30 years after the Reformation, he found himself drifting away from that. he had to constantly bring himself back to that. Well, Jesus embraced, ate with, had friendships with the socially disadvantaged, the poor and the widow, with the immoral, the tax collector and the prostitute the outsiders, uh, the Samaritan and the Syrophoenician woman, the uneducated, unsophisticated men who were fishermen uh, uh, from his village, and uh, the cultural and religious elite like Nicodemus. In fact, he included in his inner circle people of absolute polarity politically. Judas, the terrorist who wanted to destroy Rome, Matthew, the tax collector, the collaborator with Rome. Jesus shows us that being justified before God changes how we relate to all people and all groups of people. The question for us is will we live in line with the gospel? Will we work out its implications, not just in our private lives, but in our life? together. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come and we bow uh, before you, and Father, we thank you for just the uh, piercing insight that Paul has as he relates uh, this confrontation with Peter. And we pray earnestly, Lord, that you'd help us to both examine the scriptures and see if these things are so, and if we see they are, may you grant us the grace to work this out, that it would be beaten into our heads, that it would be lived out in our lives, that in all that we do, uh, people would see Christ Jesus, they'd be pointed to him, that all of life might be redeemed, that the Redeemer might be in their lives, that whether we're making things in culture or seeking to share the gospel directly and gathering for worship, that all of life,